I got home last week somewhat flustered. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you notice this with me. I'm getting older, and I'm not exactly sure why it happens sometimes, but I get off track. I lose my train of thought sometimes, and I have a hard time finding it back. Most of the time, I can navigate my way back to where it is, but last week, I'm uh, not sure I ever did that. Uh, so you might have walked away from here a little bit befuddled last week. Hopefully that won't happen again. It won't get to be a regular thing uh, with me. But uh, we are jumping back into Romans uh, chapter 9. And before we start, I want to say this. I, let me tell you another a story. Uh, we shared this a little bit when we first started this, uh, our study of, of Romans 8, and now we've continued into to Romans 9. Uh, and I shared some, a few personal experiences with you. One I don't think I, uh, I shared with you is this. Is I used to be very active in the ministerial association here and uh, some other things, and I've distanced myself from it in more recent years for, for reasons that may not be apparent to people. But, uh, you know, every now and then I tell myself I need to re-engage more again. Uh, and maybe this will happen eventually, but... Uh, and it's not because I'm contrary to other Christians at all. It's not that. That's not the reasoning behind it. Uh, but I was having a conversation one time. I told you, I think I, I told you a little story before about this, this guy that, that I used to be relatively close to. He was a pastor of one of the other churches in, in Donellan, and he wasn't Reformed. And he used to rag on me constantly about being Reformed and how can I be Reformed, you know, and you know, this, this, that, and the other, and how prideful that is, and just all kinds of things he would throw at me. And he was in my office one day, and we had been praying with each other, and we finished our prayer, and just out of the clear blue, here it comes again, this barrage. Uh, because he does, he does not agree or did not agree at all with my understanding of Romans chapter 8. This whole idea that God basically has foreordained absolutely everything that is coming to pass, including salvation, specifically and especially and particularly when it comes to those that we would call the elect, which in the elect is not a word that theology is fabricated. It's not one that I've come up with. It is a biblical word. The Bible talks about the elect. Those people that God has set apart in all of time, that he would draw them to himself, that they would become his people through the work of Christ Jesus, his son, whom he would send into the world and live on our behalf, and die on our behalf, that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be forever with him. I can understand that that rubs against the fallen human spirit. I mean, what our fallen human sinful nature says in regard to that whole concept is this, is that's not fair. It is not fair at all that God would do something like that. That if God was going to be fair, then he would save absolutely everyone. But fairness does not require that. The truth is this, is God could have left every one of us where we were, fallen in our sin, guilty before the court, under his absolute judgment, under his 
sentence of death, which amounts to eternity in hell. He could have left every person there. That is where we were. But by his grace, because he's not only a wrathful and a just and righteous God, he's also a loving and caring and merciful God. I would say this, that one of the reasons is God has done what he's done in, in saving those elect is this, is, is he's given himself an opportunity to demonstrate other characteristics of his being, and that is things like mercy and compassion and love. That the whole of mankind's experience of God would not be one of wrath and judgment, which is what the whole of mankind deserves. There's a specialness that comes in understanding that you have not saved yourself, that God has saved you part and parcel. It's a demonstration of how great his love is, not just for people in general, but specifically for you. But in this particular conversation that I was having with this other pastor, he's just going on and on about Romans chapter 8. And then what God did was he looked into the future to see who would believe. And then he went back and wrote all those names in the Lamb's Book of Life and this, that, and the other. And I listened to it, and I listened to it, and I listened to it. And finally, I looked at him and I said, well, how do you put that? How do you, how do you understand it that way in the context of Romans chapter 9? And for the first time ever, he was completely dumbfounded. He didn't even know what to say, because you know what? I'm not sure he had ever read and studied Romans 9. It certainly didn't come across that way in our conversation, because he had absolutely not one single thing to say. We need to understand that, that Romans 8 are like bookends. And just like the whole of Scripture, you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, not just little chunks, not just little sections. But Romans 8 and 9 stand together as a whole. You cannot separate them from one another. You know, we're always talking about context, context, context. The most important context of every passage is the immediate scripture around it. What's just come before it, what's coming after it. So let me just tell you, you know, you've heard me talk about the Arminian view over the last few weeks. And let me tell you, you cannot reconcile the Arminian view, understanding of this whole process of salvation, this chain of, golden chain of salvation, you cannot reconcile the Armenian view with Romans chapter 9. There's no way to do it. And be faithful to the word of God at the same time. So let's just read. Uh, verses 6 through 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed... 
for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, the father of Israel. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to what? According to his choice, might stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Remember, calling was one of those links in that chain. Effectual calling, that when God calls, people come. Remember that? It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hate it. If we read those first verses in chapter 9, really what they had to do with it was this grief that Paul, this real grief, this sorrow that was in his heart. Because his approach to sharing the gospel typically was to go to the Jews first, who we understand are descended down from the Israelites. There's a sense in which it, 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 it went to, you know, the, the term Jew initially applied to only those members of the tribe of Judah, but then it included Benjamin too, and, and really any of the Israelites that came uh, and, and worshipped uh, the God of the Old Testament uh, and all of that. But, but Paul understands this. He understands that, that uh, it was never God's intention to save all of Israel. See, we see this idea of election played out so clearly in the Bible from beginning to end. I mean, we see it in the life of Noah. Did did God set Noah apart from the rest of the people? Did God determine to bless one of his sons more than the others? A guy named Shem made a distinction between Shem and Ham and Japheth. Did God do that? Did he raise up Moses as a prophet? Set him apart to be used in a very special way from the very, very beginning? What about, we skipped over Abraham. What about Abraham? Very fundamental. And just remember this, the most important thing that we've studied so far about Abraham and our study of Romans is this, is, is Abraham, he's, he's, he's recognized as being the father of faith. Because Abraham believed God. And because of that, not because Abraham was this great, upstanding, and wonderful person from the time he was a little child until the time he died... He believed God, even though he was a sinner. And you see evidence of his sin all through the narratives of the life of Abraham. He was a great sinner, not just a little sinner, a great sinner. You look at it sometimes and say, you had such a close relationship with God, how could you be so stupid? 
But you see, it was faith that sustained Abraham all the way through. And it's always been about faith. But Paul is grieving in his heart because now the gospel has gone out with greater clarity. This is one of the things that that came through in the coming of Christ Jesus and all that he did. And that is, before that, the gospel was in a sense veiled from people. It wasn't so clear. It wasn't so much up in your face. But what Jesus did was bring the reality of it here into the earth. And lived it out in a way that had never taken place before that. But one of the things that we should draw from this passage this morning is this, is that God's intention was never, was never to save every person that descended down from Israel, from Jacob. And we know that for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is clearly this, is if God intended to do it, it would have happened. He would not have failed to lose anybody. So we need to make something really clear, and that is God's intention has never been to save the whole of mankind. And let me just tell you this, to be faithful to what the Bible teaches, it also teaches us that God did not do all of these done to make salvation equally and equitably available to everybody. He's made distinctions all the way through the history of mankind, one after the other, selecting, choosing particular people for particular things. And at the same time, he passes over others. Can he do that? You betcha. It's well within his realm of sovereignty. He doesn't have to make salvation available to everybody. And we know that he doesn't do that because there are people that live in every age that will die without ever reading the Bible, without ever hearing about the Bible, without ever hearing the gospel, without having the gospel proclaimed to them. God has chosen to pass some people over. We need to be comfortable with that. He's sovereign. It's well within his rights to do that. He could very easily have just passed over everybody. He's chosen not to do that. He's chosen that in spite of what we've done, and we're all guilty of it, to set aside a special part of mankind that he will call his very own children, that he will gather to himself, that will be with him in his glory for all of eternity. Now, some people say, well, that's just not fair. You know, God's got to be fair. But let me tell you, if people demand fairness, the fair thing, and if you want to follow that, that line of reasoning, is that we would all perish. That's what utter absolute fairness would look like. But just remember, God is sovereign. God can do whatever God wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. He doesn't explain anything to you and me. You may not understand, and let me tell you something. I hope you don't understand or think you understand why he particularly saved you. 
There's still enough of sin left in us to really think that we're very special people, that we're a lot better, we're a lot more, we're a lot this, that, and the other than a lot of the folks around us. And that's why God brought salvation to me. Just remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is something Paul has emphasized over and over again. We're all guilty. We're all not just a little guilty. We're absolutely, totally, no doubt about it, completely guilty. That's what grace is all about. If God was just a God of wrath, that would have been the end. But God is also a God of grace, a God of love. And we're the recipients of those great gifts. Which should not muster up in us a great sense of pride because I'm, I have salvation. I'm saved and other people I know are not. It should, it should humble the mess out of us. Because we know ourselves in a way that other people don't. You know when you do things. You know when you think things you should not think. Jump to conclusions you really shouldn't jump to, and this, that, and the other. Make judgments that are very harsh and sharp when it comes to other people. At the same time, seem to be very slack or lax when it comes to yourself. That's what this whole passage is about. Is God setting apart his chosen people from day one out of the mass of humanity? And we said last week, I hope you do, I hope you grieve for the salvation of people that you know that are not believing. And sometimes they're your parents, maybe your parents, maybe your children, maybe grandchildren, friends, neighbors, nieces and nephews, and, and all that. We can all share in the grief that we feel sometimes when it comes to who those who are, who are left without faith because we know ultimately what their end is going to be. And it's not something that you and I probably would wish upon our worst enemy. Paul knows that. He's grieving for so much of Israel because, you know, he's going out and he's preaching. The guy, he's been doing this now for years. This is not when he writes Romans. It's getting toward the end of his ministry, not in the beginning of it. He has he spent years now going from place to place to place. And his typical approach is to be, go to the Jews first. Uh, and, and only when they reject the gospel, then to take it to the Gentiles. And some people have come to faith who were Jewish from his ministry. But we also know that a lot of the people that are under the ministry of Paul at this point are Gentiles, not Jews. There's a sense in which some people might look upon the way that things have transpired as God's plan failed miserably. That God said he was going to set apart Israel and they were going to be specially blessed and good, you know, in the glory and this, that, and the other, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And it had happened. You know, you look upon Israel today. Is Israel much of a of great concern in the world of politics and power and things like that in today's world? I'm talking about Israel as a nation. The answer to that is, is not really. You know, in some ways there's a lot of emphasis put upon it, but but it's not like the dominating power in the world that controls all world politics or something like that. 
Some people might look upon that and, and believe it's, yep, you believe there's a God and this is what he said about Israel and this, that, and the other. And, but look at where we are today. At one time, it was like the central world power in the days of David and Solomon. But those were the glory days of Israel, and Israel's never returned back to those glory days. They've never come close to being those glory days again. But one of the most important concepts of the New Testament is that we realize this. Then indeed, there is a new Israel. The new Israel is the New Testament church. That the church is the kingdom of God in the world, not the nation of Israel any longer. And there's a sense in which that has always been true. Now, theologically, we talk very often about making a distinction in the church. And, and, and that distinction we make is this. And it's one that's important for us to make. And that's a distinction between what's called the visible church as opposed to the invisible church. In other words, what Paul has said here is this, is basically all who go by the name of Israel are not truly of Israel. They may be of the blood of Abraham, but they're not of the spirit. They're not of the faith of Abraham. But this concept of the, the visible versus the invisible church is exactly what we're talking about here. The visible church is a church as God sees it. I mean, God knows everyone that truly has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, we need to acknowledge this. That, that, that some, some scripture interprets scripture, and one of the most important passages that help us understand this in light of what we're talking about is... The, the parable of the sower that Jesus gives us in, in Matthew chapter 13 and other places, and also the parable of the wheat and the tares. Very important parables of Jesus that help us understand the reality of the church that we live in today. The visible church includes everybody that has made the profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and in some ways is part of a body of the church. We understand the church exists in lots of fragmented units today, you know, different denominations, different churches, and things like that. But we're talking about uh, institutions, in essence, that go by the name of Christ, or go by the name of church, title church. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus makes it very clear that there are people in the body who were not really part of the body. They may claim to be. There may be some reason to believe that possibly they are or this, that, and the other. But he makes it very clear that there are people in his wheat field, which is the church, who are not truly believers. That's how we see the church. Now, when we look upon the church, we see it wheat and tares all together. 
Now we may have want to draw some conclusions about particular people and you know things like that. But you and I don't know for certain who really. You know, let me. We, we just interviewed these people this morning for membership. I can't read Bob and Bonnie's heart. I cannot read Debbie Bark's heart. I don't know ultimately what their belief actually really is. The only thing I can go on is what I see. God knows, and he's the only one who does, when faith is absolutely real. There are other things that take place that look somewhat like faith, and very often people want to conclude that it is real saving faith. You think about the parable of the sower, that this, the word went out, the seed went out, the word of God went out, the gospel went out. And it fell on different kinds of soil. Sometimes it fell beside the roadside. And what Jesus says is, is, is that was, you know, it, was, it was wasted seed in a sense. It just fell on you know, ground that was absolutely total in, totally infertile. And, and the birds just immediately came and, and they, they ate it all up. And so it never, it didn't have any pack. This, this is someone who hears the gospel, but it kind of bounces off of them like uh, silly putty or something. It doesn't sink in at all. They hear it, makes no sense. Matter of fact, they may actually condemn people who believe it. Uh, that sort of thing. Their conclusion might be, uh, if you believe that, you're crazy. This gospel business. Those are not the kind of people you're going to find in the church. I mean, they don't go to church to start with. <laughs> you follow me? In other words, nothing really moves them to, to move in that direction. But there are other people. There are... Jesus describes people, some people in, in the church, the visible church, as we see it, as having something that looks like faith. That's when the seed falls upon the stony ground. And the roots begin to sprout a little bit. There's a little bit of growth. But the next thing you know, something big happens. And they fall away very quickly. In other words, when their faith is tested, the faith does not hold to the test. They fall away. If you've been in the church long enough, you, you've seen people that have fallen away from the faith. It happens. But what I'm telling you is the only reason they have is because their faith was not genuine. It was not deep. It was on the surface. Maybe they made a profession of faith, but it wasn't a profession that was real. It's more the idea that it sounds kind of interesting. Jesus, you know, sounds like he's going to be the answer to all my problems and this, that, and the other. So I'm just going to cast my lot with him and see how things go. But Jesus describes another kind of soil, and that is where the seed falls amongst the thorns and the thistles. And what he says there is that over time, whatever faith there is, the world chokes the life out of it. In other words, it's faith that's tested and fails. Now, let me tell you, faith is always tested. And when it's tested, one or two things are going to happen. Either it's going to show the faith to be false, or it's going to strengthen the faith. 
God uses the circumstances and, and things going on in your own life to do that to you. I hope that you can look back over the map of your life as a Christian and have some sense that you've grown in your faith, that your faith is deeper, your faith is more solid now than it was maybe at one time. But then there's the true faith, and that is the real McCoy. Faith that stands up in the midst of very great trials. Faith that is growing. And I want to encourage all of us to understand this, that God is not comfortable. God does not want any of us here to sit where we are, to be satisfied where we are as far as our salvation and understanding of things goes. He wants us to grow. He wants our faith to mature. He wants our faith to deepen. Like any loving father would. He wants the very best for us. And for Christians, for every Christian, it is to bring our faith to grow deeper. Not lesser. Not more superficial. Not to go backwards. And you'll see this over and over again through the epistles and through the parables and uh, and, and the other teachings of Jesus, and that is there's, there's always this encouragement to move ahead, to move higher, to never become satisfied where you're at. Because you know what? If you get satisfied where you're at, next thing you know, you're going to be going backwards. That's what will happen. Start going backwards. But everywhere in Scripture, we're encouraged to forge ahead, go higher, climb higher, dig deeper. So what I'm telling here is this, is the perfect application of what we're talking about here is, uh, is the visible church is, as people see it, but the invisible church is as God sees it. What Paul's looking at is Israel. There's the visible Israel, but he knows in the midst of that visible uh, visible Israel. There's the invisible Israel, the true believers, those who truly have faith in God. We receive those new people for his membership this morning. The only thing we've got to go on is what they tell us. We can't read their heart, but from what we see and what we hear, sounds very much like they're making real, true, legitimate faith in Jesus Christ. God knows the truth. Absolutely. We don't have the mind of God. We don't have the insight of God. But with great confidence, we receive these new people this morning because we're very confident that they truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses two examples from the Old Testament to demonstrate the things he's talking about. First one is Abraham and Sarah. Just remember that Abraham had two sons. That Isaac was not the only one. Matter of fact, Isaac wasn't even the first one. And just remember, in the Old Testament, the firstborn, they were special. They were set apart from everybody that came after them. 
That's the pattern. That's the practice. And we know that God tested Abraham and, and Sarah's faith, promising them not only a child, but this great nation, and this, that, and the other was going to come forth before them. And they knew it was predicated on something, and that was that they had a son. They got tired. They got impatient. They began to believe God wasn't going to come through with what he promised. So Sarah came up with this idea of Abraham having a son through Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant. And so they pursued that avenue. His name was Ishmael. But he was not granted the privileges of firstborn. God passed him over. Because he was not the child of promise. He was not the child that, that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah. It was a child according to their own making, in a sense. But you have to see something going on here. And one of those things is this. Is God making a choice at this point? Yes. He chose Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael. The same thing can be said when it came to Isaac and Rebekah. Promises passed on to Isaac. Two sons born to him, Jacob and Esau, twins who fought with one another in the womb. Can you imagine what it would be like to be pregnant with twins? So we just had a friend of ours, a uh, long-time friend uh, with his mom and dad, but he and, his, he and his wife were married a few years ago. They just had twins, and she's a little teeny tiny thing, maybe four feet eight or something like that, a little tiny thing. And she had these twins, and we saw her just a week or two before the babies were born, and it's like, gosh, talk about miserable. How could you possibly be any more miserable than that? You've got these two babies that are growing, crammed into this little teeny tiny girl. Uh, But in Rebecca, these, these twins, they were not just there causing the discomfort of cramming two in the place that's only really made for one normally. But they fought with one another. They were striving against each other the whole time that they were in the womb. Can you imagine? I can't imagine being pregnant with one, much less two, and, and much less than that, two that are constantly at odds with one another. Can you imagine what she went through as a mother? It was almost as if the, the twins were vying for control over the other one while they were yet in the womb. This, this, this struggle between them started at the time of their conception, not at the time of their birth. Who's going to be first? 
Whichever one of those twins comes out first is going to be the firstborn and therefore will have all the blessings and benefits of being the firstborn child of Isaac and Rebekah. Now before they were born, God had revealed to her that they were going to fight. But that the older would serve the younger. God determined that. It goes against all the teaching of the Old Testament as far as firstborn rights go. If you go strictly by the law that Israel lived by, you would have to say whichever one of those twins is born first is a firstborn, therefore has all the rights and privileges of firstborn. If you know anything about Jacob and Esau, we're not really told that much about the character of, of Esau. We know he's an earthly man. He loved to hunt and do all that other kind of stuff and, and those kinds of things, kind of a man after the own heart of some guys. Uh, very much a man of the earth, uh, that kind of thing. Jacob, on the other hand, his very name very name means deceiver. That's what Jacob means in Hebrew, deceiver. In other words, his, his name says everything about his character. The reality is, if you look through Scripture, you can't find any real wrongdoing that Esau ever does to Jacob, not one time. As a matter of fact, we understand this, if you're familiar with this story, there comes a time when he's got every reason to be super-duper ticked off at his brother and to do him harm. But even then, he doesn't. He receives him back and loves him. You know, when Jacob runs from him under the threat of his life and whatever, when he comes back, how does Esau receive him? He receives him with open arms. He loves his brother. He's kind to his brother. He doesn't kill his brother. Even when there's a sense in which Isaac has, not Isaac, but Jacob has stolen everything from him that was rightfully his. What I'm saying here is this. You want to picture righteousness as opposed to unrighteousness? You look at the life of Esau, it's a lot more righteous than you, look, than you find if you look at the life, life of Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a stinker. He was called Jacob the surplanter who was one who tries to take higher position away from someone else. We're told that when they were born, that Esau came out first, Jacob came out second, holding Esau's ankle. Do you understand what was going on there? It wasn't that he was just getting a ride along with his brother, trying to join hands with him so that they would be born, you know, just one right after the other and get mom through all the hurt and harm and whatever it was costing her. Do you understand what, what Jacob was doing? He was trying desperately to hold Esau back so that he could get out first. And we see this played out all through their lives. That's Jacob's purpose in life, is to undo Esau. 
You see that their very birth. And it just stands as a lasting example. You know, when we look around, we want to say, you know what, so-and-so, they're so nice. They're just wonderful people. They're sweet-natured people. They would really make good, great Christians. So they're the people I'm going to share my faith with, partly because it's a lot easier to share it with them than it might be with other people. Just because they're nice, they'll sit there and they'll listen to me with a smile on their face, and they're not going to throw eggs at me or, or scream obscenities at me or anything like that. But history shows this, that very often the people that come to faith in Jesus Christ are exactly the people nobody thinks will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul may be the premier example of that. It would be no stretch to make the statement that Paul was the least likely person on the face of planet Earth to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The argument can be made there has never been a greater persecutor of the church than Paul himself. We never have any evidence that he actually lifted a stone to stone some one of these, one of these, those who are following in this so-called way. That we know that he was in full agreement of people being stoned to death simply because they believed in Jesus Christ. We know that. He was the scoundrel of scoundrels. And the fact he came to faith is a measure of the greatness of the power of God. Of God. <laughs> and he's, he's, the, he's the navigator. He's the one that's steering the course. And he can use anybody and everybody in any way he wishes to, anytime he does, have the desire to do that. And Paul is a lasting example of that. But there are people in your life, and you grieve for the fact they haven't come to faith in Christ, and we all share that in common. I'll just say this to you this morning, that, uh, you know, there's been times where all four of our children were raised in the church. I mean, growing up, they knew just about nothing but church. They were homeschooled, and they got Bible at home and, you know, and, and all that. And I know I'm running long, but uh, bear with me. Uh, so we've had some concern about not all, some of our kids, we've never had any question about whether they're saved or not. Uh, but there's been a couple that we've wondered about at times. Until now. I have every confidence all of our children are Christians. So we hope we pray for that. It comes down to this. How far are we willing to trust God? I mean, what are the limitations to our willingness to trust God? Are we willing to trust even the very most precious things to us, to him? Really? Salvation is the gift of God in every instance, in every case. And what a glorious gift it is. 
You must celebrate. Celebrate. The angels in heaven celebrated when Julia came to faith in Christ. There were saints on earth probably that celebrated as well. The same thing is true for everyone in this room that truly knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. And for those who are watching, there's comfort here, there's confidence here that you're not going to find anywhere else, not anywhere else other than having a reformed perspective on things. Emphasizing above everything else the absolute and total sovereignty of God in everything, including matters of faith. Trust Him. Not in the ways of people. Not in the ways of men. Not what makes necessarily makes sense to people in some ways, and this, that, and the other. Trust Him. If he started you on the trip, he's going to carry you to the end. Period. It's dependent upon you. You will fall away. Period. Amen.